Hello, I'm Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. I'd like to welcome everyone to the latest edition of the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. I'm so excited to welcome our guest and my friend, Joe Zeidel, who is Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist for Private Wealth Solutions at Blackstone. One of the goals of this podcast is to get to know industry leaders. Joe is co-author of the highly anticipated annual list of the top 10 surprises. So with that, let's get right to it. Welcome, Joe. Good to see you. It is so wonderful to see you, Joe. I can't believe it's been this many years since we've caught. It's been a long time, but a lot of people probably don't know. We worked together at Merrill Lynch. You wrote the Rick Report, which is still in production. I don't know if you know this, but I did become the author of the Rick in one of my last few years at, at, at the firm. Well, I heard that it got much better after I left, so that explains a lot. Oh, that's not true, Joe. That's definitely not true. The other thing people might not know is we both worked with Rich Bernstein. So we have a very similar backdrop. So you have great experience on Wall Street. You went to Blackstone in around 2018. How do you take that wealth of information and knowledge that you developed through the years and bring it to your work as the chief investment strategist at Blackstone? Well, it's a great question. Thank you. And first off, thank you for having me. It's great to see you. And if I think about our time together at Merrill Lynch, and if I think about over the years, uh, my career is really focused on uh, financial advisors uh, as well as the the individual investors and independent uh, investment advisors in that in that channel. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of what I learned is that the clients that we're working with on a daily basis are responsible for a wide range of asset classes. And so we might go in there with a p- specific knowledge set. You know, you with your 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 market knowledge and your technicals, and 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 me with a, a bit of a quantitative strategy background, and now more recently over the last five years at Blackstone, developing an expertise in the alternative landscape. The thing that I, I've always carried with me is the clients that we're speaking with are taking that information and putting it in the context of a larger set of porf- uh, a larger portfolio, and so it's always been for me understanding how these different asset classes operate with one another, how they complement one another, how they provide the diversification or, or sort of the risk reduction or return enhancement, but always thinking about things in a portfolio context. Now, you work with the legendary Byron Wien, who created the top 10 surprises in 1986. And as you said, you joined him in co-authoring those top 10 surprises in 2018. So how do you go about producing this list? Because it, it, it's a phenomenal list and it has a terrific track record. It's a lot of fun to work on. So the background on the 10 surprises, you mentioned Byron published them for the first time in 1986. So this past January was the 38th annual edition of the 10 surprises. I entered the business in 1995 and I think it was sometime around 1997. I think I was about two years into the business that I can remember getting hold of the 10 surprises for the first time. And back then, these were sort of mimeographed or printed copies or sort of a copy of a copy of a copy. And I remember sort of getting it and someone telling me, you've got to read this and you've got to guard it and you know make sure you don't lose this. And so I'd run the 10 surprises virtually my entire career. 
And so when I joined Byron at Blackstone, um, and and now that I have an opportunity to sort of work on them, I would say a couple things. Number one, it's not a list of 10 things we want to get right. It's not a list of 10 product predictions or anything like that. And we don't do it for high score. Rather, we look at events or themes or outcomes where the average investor might give it a one out of three possibility, but where Byron and I and the team think there's a greater than a 50% probability. So we don't do this for a high score, but rather we do it to stretch our thinking on the markets and hopefully in turn stretch the thinking of our clients. Now, as I said, we don't do it for score, but we always check back into the 10 surprises throughout the course of the year to understand what we got right, what we got wrong, how we could improve on them. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Byron really raises the bar and he really pushes us to, to really strive in terms of the the, the product that we're putting together and the way that we approach it. So we really put a lot of thought into it. It's a process that starts every year around July. Oh, wow. And that's really we spend early. July and August understanding where the consensus is on various different topics and themes. And then we spend the fall in September, October, November writing them. And, and we go all the way down to sort of like the very end of December, editing them and reconfiguring them. And I remember when I joined Blackstone, uh, my first year that I was working on the 10 surprises with Byron, I said, hey, you know, Christmas break, we're going to take the kids, you know, on vacation. And Byron said in my 35 years or 32 years of doing it at the time, he said, I've never taken a vacation between, you know, this period because I'm always working on the 10 surprises. And Byron also maintains something called that he calls life lessons. These are 20 things that he's learned over the course of his 60 plus years in finance. And one of the life lessons is when you get a new job, make it your own. So I said, well, Byron. One of your life lessons is when you get a new job, make it your own. So I am going to take a vacation between Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> so I've used those life lessons and the 10 surprises, and I sometimes use them against each other. So maybe you taught Byron a little something. Okay, Joe, I have to do this. We're going to do a little bit of a scorecard on how you and Byron did last year. We're just going to look at three of the top 10 and see how, how you guys scored. All right, so I'm going to read these because I don't want to get them wrong. Uh, so one of your forecasts, or not a forecast, but one of your surprises was the combination of strong earnings clashes with rising interest rates resulting in the S&P 500 making no progress in 2022. Value would outperform growth, high volatility would continue, and that there's a correction that approaches but doesn't exceed 20%. Now, I'm going to give you an A for that. That, you, you got the direction right. You just a few percentage points off, maybe a little bit, just a little. We didn't go far enough. You didn't go far enough, but that was a darn good surprise. All right, so that's an A. Number two, while the prices of some commodities decline, wages and rents continue to rise and the consumer price index and other widely followed measures of inflation increase by four and a half for the year. Declines in prices of transportation and energy encourage the diehard proponents of the view on inflation that it's transitory, but persistent inflation becomes the dominant theme. Well, I'm going to give you an A for that one, too. Maybe you didn't go far enough, but that is certainly... And our goal was not to be out of consensus with this. Um, so it wasn't as if we were just simply looking at what is a consensus view and how can we be different. Our conviction was that a lot of those inflationary forces were more deeply embedded in the economy. And as a result, some easy to solve forms of inflation, yeah, they would work themselves out, but there'd be these stronger structural forces. And again, we didn't go far enough. Uh, I think at the time 
when we thought that CPI would go to four and a half percent, I think that was way out of consensus. It was. And it turns out and we only Fed missed it. the Fed was definitely way out of consensus yeah. on that one. And we only missed it by, say, 50 percent because it peaked at 9.2 percent. Well, if you use the PCE, you did a little bit better. Okay, last one. You said the bond market begins to respond to rising inflation and tapering by the Federal Reserve, and that the yield on the 10-year Treasury goes to 2.75. The Fed completes its tapering and raises rates four times in 2022. Again, an A didn't go far enough. But really, I, I think you you and Byron really hit the mark with, with those um, surprises. So in your assessment, where do, you, where do you think you did get it right and where do you think you missed? So we're always thinking about the, the lessons learned. And, and we had a couple convictions. We had a number of convictions going into 2022. Um, of course, the dominant theme out there was inflation was transitory. You know, I think one of the things that's unique to our role at Blackstone is as the world's largest alternatives manager, we're the largest in private, equ- private equity owner, we're the largest uh, commercial real estate owner in the world. Uh, we're among the largest non-bank lenders, and then we have other businesses like infrastructure and life sciences and growth. And we have the ability to look into our own portfolio companies to understand what they're seeing from, 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 from their own perspective. And we have the ability to pull all that data. So as we were looking at our views going into 2022, and again, going into 2023, and, and we continue to sort of evolve on these views, but as we were looking at these things, we thought that the imbalances in the economy were such that the Fed would have to go higher and take rates up higher than the consensus and that and that the the bond markets would respond so we we had we had thought a lot about these things but it was a it was a case of not going far enough and and you, you look at 2.75% on the 10 year treasury yield when we wrote that the 10 year is at 1.6% and i think the highest of the forecasters on the street was for it to end the year at 2.1 so we thought we were being very provocative and really planting a, a flag in the field out there but it turns out, you know, we didn't go far enough. But I, I still have to say, you guys did a really terrific job. So now let's turn to 2023. Out of all your top 10 surprises, you mentioned the Fed in four of those. And that, that, that's quite a bit. So I want to kind of review some, some of these. You say the Federal Reserve remains in a tug of war with inflation. So it puts the word pivot on the shelf alongside the word transitory. The Fed funds rate moves above the personal consumption expenditure, or the PCE price index, and real interest rates turn positive, a rare phenomenon relative to the last decade. Now, as we're talking, I went to go check where the PCE is and where fund funds is. You already got that one right. That one, you can already take a check mark. But I think it's important that you explain why this is a rare phenomenon, where, where Fed funds is above PCE, and, and what does this really mean? As we think about um, you know, the Fed and the idea of a pivot, um, with recently with the CPI data, first with the stronger jobs report a couple weeks ago, and then stronger CPI, or at least CPI that's not falling as quickly as people had sort of anticipated. And I think there was this consensus view out there that inflation would sort of fall in a linear fashion, right? That you could simply say, well, it went from 9.1% you know, or 9.2% of the peak to, to, to 6% pretty easily. So it'd go from six to two just as easily. And, and we'd always looked at inflation as maybe, or, or deflation unfolding in two stages. One stage is the easy to solve stuff. And that's largely behind us. But the second stage is much harder to solve for in that strong labor markets. 
And so we saw that in the January labor report. We see that throughout our own portfolio companies with respect to what it's like in the labor market. So we didn't think that the Fed would be in a position to pivot. That was the consensus view. I think the consensus is now shifting. But the idea of a positive real rate, one of the reasons why we wanted to focus on that is because over the course of the last decade, we've had negative real rates. And, and that is basically the, you know, whether you're using the 10-year treasury yield or if you're using, you know, PCE or, or you know, some other sort of measure, you'd have this deeply negative real rate, which encouraged a lot of speculation and encouraged sort of like higher multiples and, and those sorts of things. And in a normal, healthy functioning economy, and one that doesn't rely on central bank support, you tend to have a positive real rate. And so what we're thinking here is that there's going to be this volatility. There'll be some adjustment in labor markets. And of course, the U.S. economy will feel the effects of higher rates. But generally, I think we're putting ourselves onto a path which is a more normal functioning economy. So as we emerge out of this cycle, I think we emerge in a way that the Fed doesn't have to take rates back to zero. It doesn't have to engage in you know, quantitative easing. And instead, we end up with an environment or a cycle that actually looks sort of healthier where we do have real rates. And that leads to what I think is more rational price discovery, because the negative real rate over time sort of led to the mispricing of assets because essentially money was free. So therefore, you were free to allocate or speculate in almost any way that one wanted. So things are going to get healthier over time. I think healthier. And if I think that over the last decade of zero rates and quantitative easing, that was a decade of beta or actually more than a decade, it was 2009 to January 2022, where you basically had zero rates, negative real rates. You had central bank balance sheets that were increasing all around the world. And, and that was an environment for beta. I think the next cycle, we're going to see structurally higher rates, hence a positive real rate. Um, and I think that's going to require more work. Uh, I think it's going to require alpha, but but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities out there. It's going to require probably a broader tool set and, and more work on the part of uh, investors and allocators and advisors. But I think the opportunities will be there. Well, that sounds terrific. Okay, so I'm going to combine three and four of your top 10 surprises. Uh, you and Byron talk about that the Fed will be successful in dampening inflation, but overstays its stay in terms of being restricted, and that's going to hurt margins. And then you say, despite the Fed tightening, the market does reach a bottom, and that by mid-year, we have a uh, a recovery comparable to 2009, which is quite significant because that was a major market low. So my question is, are, are you saying that you think Fed will be positive on inflation and we reach a market bottom? But the markets have recent re- recently rallied. So when do you see a recession? And because the markets had one of the best Januaries ever, mm-hmm. do you want to rewrite number four? Yeah, good, good, good question. So first, in terms of when we see a recession, um, you know, one of the tricks is that you don't actually know you're in a recession until well after the fact, because it's the National Bureau of Economic Research that determines recession start dates and recession end dates. Um, and you know, typically they do that maybe one to two years after a, a cycle. So if I think about what are the preconditions to recession, what are the things you need to see in, in, in place in order to understand you know, if you're in a recession or when a recession is coming, you know, there's a few things that will generally kind of line up and sort of like fall like dominoes. And those are things like the ISMs. Um, where we'd seen the deterioration, 
Um, the leading economic indicators, you know, those are telling us that tougher conditions were on the horizon. Secondly, you tend, you, you, you get a corporate profits recession, right? So in other words, what you have, um, you know, if you look at every single recession since 1950, so over 70 years of data, you've had 14 recessions. If you look at those 14 recessions, you always have corporate profits declining going into that recession. And then you have an uptick in the unemployment rate. So if you think about the leading economic indicators, they've already signaled that the, their challenges on the horizon were just beginning to see the crack in corporate profits. If you look at public company earnings, you know, this quarter, we're three quarters of the way through reporting season. It looks like it's going to be a pretty tough quarter. We aren't, we haven't yet seen that third precondition, which is the uptick in the unemployment rate. And historically, the U.S. economy is really sensitive to even the smallest changes in the unemployment rate. Historically, all it takes is a 35 basis point backup in the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate to mark like the beginning of a recession, like almost the first month of it. If you look at those 14 recessions since 1950, in 12 of the 14 recessions, the 35 basis point backup in the unemployment rate marked the first month of the recession. In 1959, the unemployment rate led by six months, and in COVID, it lagged by one month. So we don't know when it's going to happen exactly because we don't learn this till well after the fact because of the NBER, but there are certain things you can look at along the way. So when's a recession going to start in the United States? I would say that, you know, I don't think that my crystal ball is necessarily any, any clearer than anyone else's. But one of the things that we wrote was the Fed overstays its welcome because we've had rates go from zero to now close to 5%. I think they're likely to go higher. The market's already taken them to 5%. Yep. And and that tells us that we will see the cycle roll over the way that, you know, the economy generally does. You know, you sort of go boom and you go bust and then you you come out of it. The key point I wanted to make, and you mentioned this about a recovery comparable to 2009. First thing I say is we don't have price targets on public markets. That's not the way Blackstone invests. We're not buying and selling stocks and bonds off the screen. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert when it comes to, you know, price levels or forecasts on public markets, but the sentiment, what we wanted to sort of convey in that surprise is that when we get through to the other side of this, I think the money that's invested in this period and periods of volatility will, will end up making for what I think will be a terrific set of returns. Now, if you want to think about the data, what's the data behind that? Well, history tells you if you're investing in 26 times earnings, which was the S&P last January, your 10-year CAGR, compounded annual growth rate, is negative. If you're investing at lower valuations, you know, and today we're at about 18 times on public companies, which is maybe a, at average or maybe slightly above average, your odds of a positive outcome, right, positive sort of returns over the next 7 to 10 years are they're positive, right? And, and it's a much better environment. Now, I think we could get more volatility and there might be more attractive opportunities or selectively you might get them. But the point is we've seen this derating and I think that's going to create opportunities. So I don't necessarily have numbers on what these, on, on terms of price targets or things like that. But, you know, history would tell us that the short-term volatility ends up being our friend as long-term investors. Got that. Okay, so for number six, you say the Fed remains more hawkish than other central banks, and the U.S. dollar stays stronger than most other major currencies, particularly the yen and the euro. This creates a generational opportunity for dollar-based investors to invest in J Japanese and European assets. To say generational opportunity is a really big deal, and I'm sure you, you thought thought that through greatly before writing it. 
What are you trying to convey with that kind of message? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I would say if there's a few surprises that have already moved our way, there are some surprises that have moved further away from us. And this is one that's definitely going against us, at least in early days, because the dollar's actually been weakening. I think when we wrote this, when we were drafting it, you know, November, December, the dollar was at, say, 103 to one of, or the euro was 103, 105 to the dollar. The yen was closer to 150. And, and, and now we've seen the dollar weaken a little bit. So the, the surprise is going against us. But the idea about- But not the markets. Not the, not the markets. The yeah. markets actually have done really well. Yes. And and so what we're thinking with, with this surprise and, and specifically the idea of a generational opportunity is over the last couple of years, we saw a massive currency adjustment where the dollar had really strengthened significantly. We were at 40-year highs against the yen, 40-year highs against the euro. You can also put the, 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 the pound sterling in there. You can talk about Australia's, Australia's currency, and even, even Canada's. So you had this massive adjustment. Now, what makes this so interesting from my perspective is the problems in the global economy, so the problems in the US, Europe, Japan, and so many other parts of the world are more synchronized today. They're more similar than they are different. So if you look at something like Europe as an example, if you go back to Europe's last crisis, which was 2010, it was the Eurozone debt crisis. And that was a crisis in the periphery of Europe, right? It was Italy, it was Portugal, it was Spain. Um, and that was kind of a European-specific crisis. The euro was averaged 136 against the dollar over the course of that crisis. Today, Europe's problems are more similar to the US. It's a labor shortage, it's inflation, it's European Central Bank hiking rates. They had an energy crisis or the potential for an energy crisis, but fortunately they had a warmer than average winter, so they didn't have the cost of living crisis that, that many people had feared. So if you look at Europe's problems, they're more close, more highly aligned to the US than they are different. And yet the Euro had averaged in November, December 105, now it's sitting around like 109 against the dollar. So you've had this massive currency adjustment at a time when the problems are more similar than different. So our thought process was if a dollar-based investors to put capital into high quality European or Japanese assets, or maybe even in the UK selectively, or Canada or Australia, over time, I think those interest rate differentials tend to narrow. That's what they tend to do over time. Over a 10 year time cycle is from my quant background. Yep. And so that gives a dollar based investor a return kicker as those currencies sort of move back closer to fair value. Yeah, because the other thing you didn't mention is that the countries outside of the United States were more favorably valued. Yes. Significantly so in some, in, in some, in some areas, as, which is another positive kicker. Yeah, the attractive valuations, and then as a dollar-based investor, you've got the potential for that currency to maybe move back to parity or fair value, and that gives you additional kicker, and I think it's an enormous opportunity. And by the way, we put our money where our mouth was over the holidays. We took the kids to Italy because I said, hey, look, the euro's at 103, 105. We're going to convert it. I can tell you there's a bull market in gelato and street pizza in Rome. <laughs> That's terrific. Okay. So you also talk about China in your top 10 surprises. You talk about crude oil going to 50. And you talk about commodities actually looking good. Can you explain what you're, what the, that message is really saying or what you're trying to convey in that message? We were trying to look through the volatility of China's zero COVID tolerance policy and, 
in the in November December as we're anticipating the the reopening we're thinking okay the reopening uh, you know it was uh, uh, seen as, as as rather abrupt and, and somewhat chaotic in in how quickly they shifted their COVID policies but we were looking at the potential for a strong economic rebound in China from a combination of its like 5.5 percent growth if I recall correctly to their their 5.5 percent GDP target. And, and this is one that I wish we could have published when we first started writing the surprise, because by the time we went to print on January 4th, uh, I think this was moving closer to consensus. But the, the question was, would China's reopening be deflationary or would it be inflationary? And our view essentially was that it would be inflationary, that their growth would be commodity intensive. It would, um, uh, as they resume sort of travel and, and, and things like that, the Chinese tourist ends up being the largest tourist in the world. In 2019, pre-COVID, they sent 155 million people abroad. And when you look at places like here in the United States, here in New York City, if you look across Europe, the Chinese tourist spending is about three times that of the next biggest tourist. So we thought for services around the world, this would be positive. So you mentioned crude oil. We thought that the prospects of a recession could push crude prices down. But what we wrote in the surprise was ultimately there's a $100 tick out there. Because I think as some of the near-term concerns over the global and US economy sort of dissipate, and as you start to think about what the recovery looks like, I think one of the observations that we wanted to highlight here is that we're still undersupplied in commodities. We're still undersupplied in oil and energy and energy transition. And, and those things, I think, can trigger higher prices or, tri or trigger sort of a, uh, a resumption of inflation pretty quickly. Oh, that's good for the materials sector, by the way. Okay, let's shift to the Ukraine because you kind of mentioned Ukraine in, the, in your top 10. And you say the bombardment, destruction, and casualties in Ukraine continue for the first half of this year in 2023. But in the second half, the combination of suffering and costs on both sides ne necessitates a ceasefire and negotiations on a territorial split. What gives you the confidence that the Ukraine and Russia can come to a ceasefire agreement? And what do you think this means for markets? Well, the first thing I'd say is we have no special insights into the war in Ukraine. Um, the surprise is really the result of us talking to uh, as many policy experts as we could and reading as much as we could uh, about the war in Ukraine. And virtually everyone that we spoke to or everything that we read suggested that there was really no path toward ending the, the hostilities. And so we thought the surprise would be that something does develop in 2023. Um, and we thought it might be the, the cost and the suffering on, on both sides. If that does happen, um, then I think it's one where it's it's obviously it's it's uh, I think it's a positive, um, you know, because you can alleviate uh, a lot of the suffering in Ukraine. Uh, but I also think it opens up Europe in particular to a wave of investment. There's a lot of restocking that needs to take place. There's a lot of inventory rebuild that's commodity intensive. JP Morgan looks like they're going to be involved in some way. I don't know if you've read about that, but it looks like they're going to try to be involved if something happens in the rebuild. Yeah. And 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 I hadn't seen it. And, and you know, you want to acknowledge, of course, the human suffering and the toll that this is taking on people. Um, 
if you're to sort of shift and, and put on your economist cap, that infrastructure rebuild has got one of the highest positive knock-on effects for labor and for other forms of investment spending. It's commodity intensive. And it really is a potential catalyst out there for an investment cycle. And that has really positive knock-on effects for all sorts of industries. So out of tragedy, maybe we can get something that's positive. That, that, that would be really nice if we could get that in 2023. Okay, Joe, out of all the top 10 surprises that you had, this one floored me that it actually made the cut. You actually say... In spite of the reluctance of the advertisers to continue to support the site and the skepticism of creditors about the quality of the firm's debt, and we're talking about Twitter, Elon Musk gets Twitter back on the path to recovery by the end of the year. What I'm curious about is how did that make the cut? Why was that so important? One of the messages that we always want to send in the 10 surprises is that we don't take ourselves too seriously. And as a result, other people shouldn't either. So we're always thinking about what could be a little bit more whimsical in nature or what might be a little bit more, just call it lighthearted. Um, and, and as we thought about that, um, you know, first I want to acknowledge the skepticism of creditors, the nervousness of advertisers. Uh, I have to acknowledge being a bit of an Elon Musk fanboy. Uh, so uh, you know, there's probably some, some bias there. But we thought with the, the pessimism out there, um, you know, we thought that maybe we'd see something positive develop. But again, it's 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 just to send a message that we don't take ourselves too serious. Well, I think you achieved it because it certainly, you know, put a smile on my face. I got a big chuckle on that one. All right. I'd like to shift a little bit, Joe, and, and shift to Blackstone's outlook. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions sure. in, in, in that sense. So we're going to move away from the top 10 surprises. But I want to ask, how does the top 10 influence the strategy and economic outlook? Um, for the year for you? Sure. So so the first thing I'd say about the 10 surprises is this is designed to stretch our thinking and hopefully in turn stretch the thinking of our clients. But every year when we're drafting them, we're thinking about what is the narrative because we want some underlying consistency among the surprises. So going into 2022, our overarching narrative was we think it's going to be a better year for the economy but along with that, inflation would run hotter, interest rates would be higher, and it would be more challenging for markets. So that was kind of the narrative going into 2022. Going into 2023, we kind of see the exact opposite because we finally see the effects of the higher rates. So we think it's going to be a tougher year for the economy, but a better year for the markets. And you know, if you think about it, we all know that monetary policy operates with a one-year lag, and we're less than a year removed from the first feds from the feds first hike which was march of 2022 they only started shrinking their balance sheet in september and i think the big surprises for markets is that we haven't really seen the slowdown yet well the textbook tells you it takes about a year i think the big surprise for people is that maybe monetary policy will actually take a year so as we were putting together or framing this year's 10 surprises the narrative was more challenging economic environment, but a better year for deploying capital. Well, down, downturns bring opportunity. Yep, and, and that's what we were sort of framing out. So how the 10 surprises influence our outlook is that there's this underlying narrative. And over the course of the year, we're always checking back into the 10 surprises to understand what's going right, what's going wrong. 
But but the overall concept is we thought it would be a more challenging economic environment. Okay, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you this question. What is it like working with a legend like Byron Wayne? It's amazing. Uh, we celebrated Byron's 90th birthday recently. Wow, because uh, I remember when I started working on Wall Street, I hate to say this, but it was 1985, is my first job. I was doing things as an intern, but my first real you job- You must have been kindergarten, interning as a yeah, kindergartner. I love yep. you, Joe, love you for that. Um, and one of the things that I learned very quickly was the research that Byron wrote. And one of the things that I can remember is that he was one of the best writers on Wall Street, he told a story and it was so eloquently told. We don't tell stories anymore because we just have to read so much so people don't wanna read stories, but Byron always had a gift um, for really telling a story with a strong message. I'm sorry, I just had to get that in there. He has a steel trap for memory. He is one of the most incredible networkers that I've ever met. His Rolodex of people that he's met over the years or influenced and stayed in touch with is second to, to none. Uh, so it's really neat to work with him. He wrote something years ago called 20 Life Lessons. And, and he'll tell the story that he was at a conference and he was getting ready to speak at this big conference. And the host of the conference said something to the effect of, hey, Byron, two or three other speakers have spoke about the economic environment. So we want you to come cover something different. Why don't you talk about the things that you've learned over the course of your career? And so on the spot, he came up with a list of his own life lessons and he delivered that. And that's become sort of a foundational to Byron. And so one of the things I've learned from him is, is those life lessons and how to incorporate some of those into, into my day to day. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, on his writing, so five years ago when he hired me to be his successor, he asked me very humbly, he said, can I stay on with you? Aww. I thought, well, I've got to evaluate your Excel skills. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out he's a terrific writer, so he's got a place on the team, which he would have had no matter what. Oh, that, that really is a great story, Joe. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. That market history is precious. Get it recorded. We posted it to Blackstone's website. No way! It is a video of Byron's life lessons. It's available to anyone listening to the podcast right now. Anyone watching it can go to Blackstone's website. I'll send you a link too. That's uh, awesome. That 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 is you. so precious. Okay. Um, now I'm going to get serious. Too. Okay. Real estate. I think you might know a little bit. I think Blackstone and you might know a little bit about real estate. So what's your long-term outlook for real estate and can you weave in millennials? Because I think there's an important story there with real estate and millennials. First thing I'd say about real estate, so we are among the largest real estate owners in the world. Um, we are highly thematic investors. So even though we are the largest, we are not beta. We are not the market. We're highly thematic investors in everything that we do. So the first thing I'd say on real estate is not all forms of real estate are gonna perform the same way, especially in a more challenging environment where you've got higher base rates, which translates into higher cap rates. 
Um, so there are areas of the real estate market where we are underweight uh, that we've consciously uh, pivoted away from. And then there are a couple areas of the real estate market in which we are significantly overweight. Uh, so I'll start with the two areas of real estate that we, we like the most that are for us secular or thematic overweights. First is last mile logistics. So you can think about these as warehouses within a couple miles of population centers. Why we are in this space? Well, about, a, about 10 years ago, we started thinking about the Amazon effect and how to play the Amazon effect. And so for us, it was by buying the warehouses that Amazon and other logistics companies would need in order to deliver e-commerce. A lot of boxes show up at my house that have Amazon on them. Those boxes have to come from somewhere. I learned during COVID that if the Amazon delivery person doesn't stop at my house four times a day, that I need to text his wife and to say like, hey, is Phil okay? Does he need a cup of coffee? Um, I'll come back to that in a second because um, we've done something in private equity which complements what we're doing in real estate. We tend to be highly thematic investors, and when we see something in one part of our portfolio, we think, how can we incorporate it in other parts? So I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But on real estate, um, the last mile logistics, these are you know the, the urban infill warehouses. The replacement costs on these has more than doubled relative to pre-COVID. So in the real estate markets, we always think about supply and demand, and there's just not a lot of new supply in the urban infill space. So we think there's a pretty big moat around the types of warehouses that we own. And, and for large e-commerce companies, the warehouse is a very small component of their cost structure, whereas the last mile delivery tends to be the single largest expense. So the cost of the warehouse near population centers is a very low single digit percent of a big e-commerce company's overall expense. But the driver, the gas, the van, that tends to be the largest component. So. Our warehouses, the occupancies are near all-time highs, and we've had very strong rent growth because it's just not feasible for big e-commerce companies to move further away because it increases the biggest part of their cost structure. Secondly, multifamily housing continues to be a, a pretty significant overweight for us. And people would think, why would you want to own multifamily housing when you're going into an economic downturn with higher interest rates? Well, the space that we're in is own to rent. We don't own to flip. What we own is around 230,000 multifamily apartments and 30,000 single family homes. And if you think about the new supply of housing, well, housing starts are down 30 to 40%. Housing is interest rate sensitive. It, with higher interest rates, you're not getting a lot of new starts. So we already had a shortage of housing in the United States. And with higher interest rates and slower growth, it's likely to exacerbate that shortage. So we think the demand, the supply demand dynamics in multifamily housing remain very strong, and I think they will be through the cycle. Um, two areas of real estate that we are underweight are number one, commercial office, and number two, retail. And in my own personal view on commercial office is that, you know, we'll be looking at this for years, the vacancies and the migration away from the big cities into the South and Southwest I think it's going to create a lot of vacancies throughout the dense north and northeast and Midwest. And so I think office could be challenged for a long time. So we have very little office exposure and then very little retail exposure. And if you think about office and retail for a second, they tend to sign longer term leases. In warehouses, our average lease term is four years and multifamily housing is one year. So they're shorter duration. And I think the shorter duration exposures uh, uh, help. Last thing you mentioned was how does that tie into the millennial? We've seen that migration trend. It was happening pre-COVID where your 
upwardly mobile, you're highly educated, you're young. They were moving to the South and Southwest and COVID accelerated that. Because you can work from home. Yep. And the vast majority of our real estate exposure is in the South and Southwest. My next question for you is, I've been talking several months, in fact, since I've joined the firm, which was in September. Um, I've been talking that 60-40 is back. You know, a lot of people in the industry had argued 60-40 is dead. And and I, I, I personally don't buy into that. I think now you can have a diversified portfolio of 60-40, meaning stocks versus bonds. But you're, you're on the private credit, private equity side. Can you create a portfolio uh, using your kind of investments in a 60-40 style portfolio? You know, 60-40 portfolio massively underperformed last year is probably the worst year in history. And you, you'll know the data better than I will. Uh, I had read from an analyst somewhere that Treasuries had the wor- 10-year Treasury had the worst year since 1788. Um, I struggle to think of what was so bad in 1788 that caused it to be really bad for Treasuries. In 1787, we had the Constitution. 1788, you wake up and Maine and Maryland and Massachusetts, they're all like sort of ratifying the Constitution, but evidently the bond market hated that. Adam, Captain Adam Phillip, uh, landed a boat in Sydney Harbor and discovered Australia in 1788. Evidently, the bond market didn't like that either. But the question becomes, is this a one-time phenomenon? Was it an aberration in history that you had such bad performance? Well, the magnitude of the performance was extreme. But the idea that stocks and bonds were positively correlated, if you look back over history, you tend to find in environments where interest rates and inflation is higher, you tend to get a positive correlation more often than negative correlation. So I'm personally of the view that investors will need a larger set of tools to create a a properly diversified portfolio. Um, And I think when you look at the private markets, private equity, private real estate, and private credit, I think they can be risk reducers. Uh, I think they can also be additive when you think about the, the performance. And the way that I think these things coexist is if you look at them through the lens of liquidity, because when you're talking about private markets, you give up the daily liquidity, and historically, what you receive in exchange for that is an illiquidity premium. And, and so if we think about a portfolio in terms of a continuum from the most liquid on one side to the less liquid on the other side, uh, I think that there is, um, I think it ends up being really key to building a portfolio if investors acknowledge there's some part of their portfolio that they don't need to have on demand 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they, they're not going to see it on CNBC or Bloomberg or look it up in the paper. Exactly. Okay. Now. There's been democratization in in the alt space. And how do you at Blackstone um, help your clients, particularly um, advisors? um, And of course, I can throw in independent, right? Because an independent advisor, how do you help them incorporate um, private investments in a client's portfolio? Well, first and foremost, there's an educational component because these investments are not necessarily daily liquid. Um, And meaning if you're thinking about private real estate, we're not buying and selling stocks off the screen. We're owning multifamily apartments and last mile logistics and, and real assets. And so there's not the daily liquidity. So first, it's having an educational component because you have to help people understand how this asset class works, uh, what its drivers are. And at the same time, you don't necessarily have the big swings in sentiment that you see associated with the public market equivalents. 
because public market real estate can be much more volatile than private market real estate. So you see these big swings, or you can see these big swings in the public market equivalents that you just don't see in the private market equivalents. And, and so there's an educational component, number one. And then number two, just in terms of overall democratization, it was about creating products that would allow for investors to, to access them. And you know, historically, if you look at Blackstone's roots or its origins, it was with institutions and sovereign wealth funds and pensions and endowments because they could make the investments and not necessarily need the, the, the daily or the liquidity or, or, or even the semi-liquidity because their obligations tend to be way off in the distant future. So they had the time value. Uh, so in, in helping to democratize the space, we created semi-liquid products here at Blackstone that provide the institutional class management, but with the opportunities for monthly or quarterly uh, liquidity um, under certain circumstances for, for the advisors and for the clients. So it was about sort of a middle ground, finding a structure that allows for access, but still maintaining the integrity of the, the professional management. And it, it, for us, importantly, the thematic uh, management, which is, you know, for us, we're, we're very active managers. Joe, when you and I were um, at Merrill Lynch, to diversify a portfolio in alts was a little bit different. You pretty much only had gold or commodities. So the, the, the world of democratization in alts is, is fairly new um, and not that common, but we're starting to see a major shift uh, in portfolios. So how do you see this occurring over the next few years in terms of the adoption of alts in portfolios? I think there's an enormous runway for uh, financial advisors, independent financial advisors, uh, and others in terms of uh, uh, getting access to and building their positions in the alts space. And, and I think if we look at the, the data, it would tell you that uh, individual investors are massively underinvested. Um, I think the data would tell you that among uh, higher net worth investors, the average allocation to alts is somewhere around maybe two to three percent. And so I think there's a, a, a long-term growth story here, especially as these asset classes become more accessible. Um, so at Blackstone, our focus is private equity, private real estate, private credit. In the last couple of years, we've started businesses in infrastructure and life sciences and, and growth. And, and so for us, I think the question becomes, how can we continue to open up these businesses uh, and these investments to 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 the the advisors and their individual investors? Uh, and so I think that the runway ends up being coming really uh, tremendous, and it's one where I'm enormously optimistic. One of the questions you always hear is like, "Wasn't well, there too much dry powder in private equity? How much more can it grow?" I don't know the answer to that, but. If I think what's the right level of private equity versus public equity in the United States today, the Wilshire 5000 is the broadest index of stocks and the Wilshire 5000 probably has any idea how many stocks are left in that under 4000? Yeah, I, I should know the answer and I don't. But what I do know is a lot of companies have chosen to stay private and not go public. And that's another reason why we're seeing, I think, such an interest in, in the private markets. That's right. And there's 2 million businesses in the United States with employees. And that is compared to 500 companies in the S&P 500, somewhere below 4,000 companies publicly listed total in the United States. So 
uh, I think there ends up being a long runway here. Joe, this is going to be my last question. This has just been a terrific conversation. So are there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to share with us? I would draw on my experience of working alongside folks like Rich Bernstein, Byron Ween, working alongside you for so many years, and it is never stop evolving, right? Every stage of my career, I've worked with some of the smartest people that I've ever met, and it pushed me to learn and to evolve, and, and that's what keeps us young, it keeps us learning, and I think it helps keeps us sharp, so thank you. I can't thank you enough for joining us oh. here today. It, yeah, it, so happy to do it. So cool to see you. It's been such a terrific um, and educational discussion. Thank you for having me, Marianne. So thank you all for viewing. Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through Sanctuary Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Sanctuary Securities, Inc. and Sanctuary Advisors, LLC are wholly owned subsidiaries of Sanctuary Wealth Group, LLC.